This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Material is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hi, this is Rob Sanchez. I'm the CEO of Mouth Media Network, and I recently had the privilege of moderating a topic called Financial Impact of Social and Sustainable Business Practices on behalf of Financial Executives International. And it was a conversation that got deep into material development, into sustainability issues, and into governance issues inside of companies. And it's a conversation that I think you'd really enjoy. And so without further ado, here is this incredible panel with uh, very high-level executives from their industries with tremendous experience. And enjoy. This is Material Is Your Business, a podcast covering the science, technology, and business of materials and manufacturing. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Powered by Sennheiser. All right. Welcome. Welcome to another Mouth Media Live. We are here with a, a very fascinating panel. Um, this is a little bit different than most of the panels that we've done, most of the live events that we've done. Um, we have four incredible people from adjacent spaces. So we put together a panel of people with backgrounds in social responsibility, in um, environmental uh, sustainability, in stewardship and governance, in impact investing, um, ESG practices, internal uh, corporate controls, and so on. All of these are very close and very similar. And the conversation that we're going to have today is about using these ways of looking at companies, these ways of looking at internal issues inside of companies as engines of growth. And so um, I'd like to go down the line, have each of you introduce yourself, uh, just say your name, your title, and maybe a little bit about yourself. So Karina, we'll start with you. Hi, I'm Karina Givagasov. I'm the founder of Mission Magazine. Um, and we're the first ever fashion philanthropic media brand, which focuses every six months on a different cause um, and a different charity. Very good. Hi, my name is Danielle Joseph. I work with Closed Loop Partners, helping them to manage Closed Loop Ventures, which is a, a venture arm within the group. We invest in very early stage companies in sustainability of supply chains and waste reduction within supply chains. We also have a project finance arm called Closed Loop Fund, which lends capital to municipalities and to private operators to increase uh, recycling infrastructure across the United States. Uh, in addition to that, we have a Center for the Circular Economy, which is an accelerator and solution search hub for a lot of these issues in what we call the circular economy. Very good. Hi, I'm Beth Colleton. I'm the founder of Purpose Strategies. I've spent the last 20 or so years in corporate social responsibility and sustainability. I ran that for 15 years at the NFL and then spent the last decade at NBC Universal running those groups. And so what my new company does, based on all that experience, is work with organizations and corporations at the intersection of purpose, culture, and performance, really looking at what a company does to impact not just its customers, but society and the environment, and drive all that forward together. 
Hi, I'm Bill Reinish. I'm a venture partner with Paladin Capital Group. We're a multi-stage international venture capital firm, um, investing in a lot of different areas, focused on technology primarily, but we do other investments as well. I'm also the chairman of the entrepreneurship department at Fashion Institute of Technology, and one of the areas I'm responsible for is I've developed courses in both ESG, sustainability, and um, many of the other sectors around that, and educating the next generation of young people. Excellent. So, Bill, let's actually start with you. Um, you're looking at the beginning, early stages uh, of thinking about um, sustainability as part of the core of a company that's growing. I'm wondering if you could share a couple thoughts about uh, ways to incorporate um, in the early stages of planning a company these ideas, the, this idea behind ESG or sustainability. So, I think the ways of thinking about ESG and sustainability in the very early seed stage, um, to use the industry term, or really idea generation stage of thinking about corporations has dramatically changed. Um, it used to be a methodology, an approach. Um, it's become almost a complete sector and a complete way of thinking about it. And I think it's actually changing again. So I think what we're going to see is the next generation of opportunities here are not going to view ESG as an add-on. They're going to view ESG as a fundamental part of a business structure and actually a fundamental way of building an industry as well as not just a business. Yeah, yeah I'm nodding because having we, – we talked earlier, this area has had so many titles. Like I think I've had nine of them. Um, is it sustainability? Is it citizenship? Is it stewardship? Is it CSR? It's social impact. I mean it doesn't mean one thing. To your point is it is evolving, and I always say it doesn't work well when it's down the hall. When it's a thing that those people do and the rest of your company tunes out saying it's taken care of, it's got to get really into the DNA to make it aligned with the business and really take advantage of all the assets on the table. Because otherwise, like we said, it's just – it's reactive. It's kind of check the box. But if you really drive into your purpose, all the assets your company has and everybody in the company is looking at their line of work and how you drive against that, that's where you really grab the opportunities. Yeah, and I would add on to that, a lot of what we see in the space are companies that are really founded around these principles of ESG. So it's not just how do we incorporate this into a traditional business model, but how do we build a company that takes advantage of the need for more sustainable, more uh, energy efficient kind of practices in multiple sectors and driving companies and businesses around those themes. So as you're talking about driving companies and businesses around the themes, can you talk a little bit about what you're thinking um, as a company puts together a plan, as they're thinking about ways of approaching the actual building of the business? How do you use this as a lens for growth? How do you use it as a way of generating more opportunity? Yeah, so the companies that we look at are specifically right now, taking a waste stream and turning it into a value as a core, that's the core of their business. So what that means is I'm going to, the more I grow economically and financially, right, the the more waste I'm diverting or the more, uh, the more material I'm saving. And so it's directly correlated to growth in a lot of ways. The, the more environmental you can be, the more money you can make, right? And so that's, that's a lot of what we're seeing. So I think the other interesting comment is that's a great sector that's emerged. But to your earlier comment about business models, I actually think what's starting to happen is you're seeing that being paralleled with companies that are structuring business models that, by definition, are that structure, right? So we're really changing the business models in some of these areas where 
we can take a waste stream and turn it into a revenue stream, or we can take a total approach and look at it holistically, and maybe the business model changes, the waste stream and the revenue stream changes simultaneously. And I'm seeing a lot of young both entrepreneurs and companies look at the holistic problem as well. And I think that's going to evolve into your point of this is a consciously evolving space in the next generation space. Uh, so, Karina, can you talk a little bit about how you structure what you're working on? You're moving through different questions, different um, topics, and different causes. How is that playing in? Well, we've, we're coming out of our next issue, Environment, um, which is actually very interesting to listen to all you guys' comments. Um, because <clears throat> we have obviously different sections within the magazine, but obviously we have one fashion section within that. And what's been really interesting and educational to me and my team is discovering certain companies, one in particular called Avenue, um, this yeah. lady, Stacey Flynn, who I think is very revolutionary and game-changing actually in how they're treating fiber um, yeah. and threads and turn them into pulp and then repurposing them into um, other fabrics um, yeah. and technology. They're able to actually extrude... Uh, new threads yes, and new materials yes. with different properties. It's it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And I think because they are a, quite a new early development company, they can apply all of this from the get-go as opposed to brands that are under the caring or the LVMH, the bigger, bigger companies, the big brands that have to kind of change and adopt to the ever-changing landscape. Um, so I think we've kind of been... Avenues one, Bolt Thread's another one that we've just come across, which is just what they're doing with silk and spiders is is, is incredible. Um, and then you've got the traditional lady, um, Eileen Fisher, who I think people would think she's has one of, they have one kind of view of what her designs are like, but she's actually been quite a game changer quietly and going in kind of stealth mode under the radar for a while um, of being sustainable. And they want to be, I think, 100% sustainable, the business in 2020. And they ask their customers to bring any of their product back to the stores. Um, and they have a factory upstate, I think it's in Irving, where they take all the rivets, the buttons, the zips out of all the product and they re purpose it and they redesign it and they shift through all this fabric to resell it back into the stores which I think is such an incredibly clever approach so um, we do every six months we focus on a different cause um, we have like social media um, social cause marketing is kind of really what we do and we want to put sustainability throughout each issue because it's such a massive topic that and it's like you're saying, Bill was saying, it's changing quickly. The landscape is changing very quickly. So we want to be able to cover that and support that just ongoing. So one question that has come up a lot when we're talking with sustainability uh, companies, and I'm sure that you get this with closed loop as well, this question of how do you scale? So it's great to take back product that you've sold. It's great to repurpose it. It's great to resell it. Um, and that works often best in a micro company. Um, as you grow and scale, how do you keep that as part of uh, what you're doing? And how does that actually, um, how is that possible? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> is that for me? Yeah. That's a good for, question. For whoever, yeah. I've no idea. Um, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you had to ask me that one. Um, I think it's different because I'm not, we're not a designer. So we're not kind of taking an actual product and repurposing it and putting it back into to the consumer's hands. Um, I think how we, we plan to scale is um, kind of by just not having a printed 
physical thing in our hands that we will go out to different events and just make it on a larger platform um, and bringing and really growing with our community um, Mm -hmm. and showcasing and working with corporations, working with working with brands so that we can give back, um, whether that be a financial or an educational um, donation that we would give with them. But in terms of sustainability um, and scaling, I think it also depends on kind of it's our audience of who we're growing with. I mean, we have a very young, our kind of our key people are Gen, Gen Zs and millennials. Um, and to me, that's where we see the growth the most because it's their future that all of this is going to impact. And that's, I think, what my personal driving force with this all is, is just to have the youngsters be part of what we're doing. And what we're doing is really, it's really never been done before. And we're doing it in a very nimble, unorthodox way. Um but it's the youngsters that work with me. Our youngest intern is 18 years old, and she has a very strong viewpoint on sustainability and scaling and doesn't want to spend money on certain brands, whether that's a beauty brand or a, um, buying a fur jacket or seeing things that are in the media, certain influencers, let's say, that are on Instagram that are promoting things that she doesn't believe in. Um, so it's listening It's listening to a younger audience as well, I think, helps keep us on track to, to grow in the right direction. Yeah. And in uh, the fact that we're a small world, um, we're actually investors in Evernew. And so oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and I think that when you think about scaling for a company like them, you know, it's it's how do you how do you take a phenomenal technology that can literally take your old pair of jeans and convert it into a new pair of jeans and integrate that into the existing supply chain? And that's the key for a lot of these companies that are uh, creating these amazing technologies. And then there's, I think, other room for scale in companies like another one of our portfolio companies is the Renewal the, the renewal Workshop. And they are doing something uh, where a lot of the textiles, for example, that get shipped to the United States fully made, your jackets or whatnot, come and sometimes there's a button missing or uh, there's a stain or something. And those go into landfill. They get disposed of because the the brand here doesn't necessarily want to sell them. But what the Renewal Workshop is doing is taking all of that in, fixing the buttons, taking the stains out, and then reselling them, either back through brand channels or through their own direct-to-consumer marketing. And that's a that's a scalable model where the brands don't necessarily have to take that on. This separate company can, but like together they can they can scale. I think the other thing to look at, and these are great examples, but your question was scalability. There's going to be scalability in these areas that are how do I told it, turn an old pair of jeans into a new pair of jeans? How do I get efficiencies in the supply chain? I think those are going to happen first. I think they're going to be extremely successful. But we're also going to have another generation behind them. right? I've seen technologies now that are about how do we take core fabrics and make them as recyclable as we have paper today? And you can now take a piece of paper, and I would give you the Coke-Pepsi challenge of, is this piece of paper recycled or is this piece of paper virgin? And there's technologies out there where it would be hard-pressed for an individual to tell the difference. Right? We're not there today on some of the fabric technologies. I think we will get there. Right? The other thing is whether we're going to turn a pair of jeans into something else right? and then actually look at it as the supply chain is going to cross sectors, where yeah. denim is going to turn into an entirely different use case. Yeah. An entire different function that I've seen. I love that denim is a great example here because it used to be the primary ingredient in money. And the second you introduced stretch, you lost that. And now money is no longer capable of being made with denim. So that's an interesting example on, on that side. 
The other thing I jump in from the established company point of view is this space can be a little soft and slippery because a lot of times people get caught up in the feel-good part of environmental and social, and you end up with a bunch of singular, almost demo projects, and it feels good, and when you put them together, it looks big, but if you actually put it through some of the metrics and measurements that you would the rest of your business, you'd be hard-pressed to say not only of the impact it made maybe on the issue, but almost more importantly, how did it drive your business? So you have to roll back and get up to the strategy level and say, why are you why are you doing the first place? It's got to fix something or it's got to drive forward on something. Risk, opportunity. And you've got to build around that and it's got to be, and I hate the word materiality because, it, again, it feels down the hall. But, again, it's got to be a materiality of business. It's got to make sense for that. And then, as I always say, the way you scale it in a company is the person who had to walk the halls and, and get an enterprise to buy into that is you've got to understand um, what all the different business verticals need. Um, and I told John, I, I pretty much say this almost every time I talk, is the idea is you can't sell it from the social impact point of view. You've got to sell it to the person on their point of view. So I say it's not what you're selling, it's what they're buying. So whether you're talking with the CFO, whether you're talking with the operational lead, you're talking with your head of legal, you've got to think about what they need out of the action and drive the value um, that way. And that's where you really get the returns. And and even as an example, because I know there's financial folks in the room is, you know, for on sustainability, we kept trying to solve stuff. We ended up a lot of good but small things. We had to look at the structure because... Almost 99% of the time, it was cost. We'd love to pursue that, but we're out of budget because we were working in OPEX. Like, well, where's the money? It's in CAPEX. So I got on the CAP Council. We started these conversations way upstream when there was long-term planning. There was large money on the table. The percentage increase to get that gain was much smaller at that level budget than when you're trying to squeeze it out of OPEX at the end. And that was transformative for us because we were having – conversations where, you know, you've been around those tables when you're, you're, you're pressing on the budget. And I, I added a voice into it saying, well, if we tweak a little bit this way and this way, we're going to get all types of downstream output that we couldn't have gotten before. And it's actually not that big a break on, on the budget. And remember, it's not just cost. We are doing these things because we are also getting gains on, you know, reliability. We are dealing with regulators. It maybe helped us get entry to a market because, again, you take – um, everything you do, your reputation, your actions with you. And let's face it, on a global marketplace, there are some places who will not let you in if you have a reputation um, for not, again, being proper stored to the environment or human rights issues or whatever it might be. But those are just things that I think to really drive something enterprise-wide, you have to understand you're working in an enterprise and everybody's motivated by different things. Your job in a role like mine is to thread those together. I love um – what you just said, because I think supply chain becomes an interesting place to talk about that, where there's a lot of this talk about cost, but there's also business models account for 30% loss for what you were talking about, about rework, the need for rework. So if you're assuming that you're losing 30% of inventory um, and you're budgeting for landfill, you actually can increase the amount you spend per garment and increase the quality without changing the downstream impact if you can fix the supply chain side. And so there becomes all all of these interesting levers and tools across the entire organization where you can um, increase the overall impression of a brand and so on. Um, I have actually want to say something on this on sustainability and and brands. Um, When we were putting together this second issue, um, a fashion team wanted to do a photo shoot 
with all sustainable brands um, so that we would just really kind of support these up-and-coming talents or brands that already existed. Um, and I'll be very honest here, a lot of it was very ugly. Um, it, it didn't, they did, there wasn't that kind of cool design style or skill to it. Um, and I think that's, that's what we have found in the last six months, that it's, it's great having a brand or, or a young and up-and-coming company that want to be sustainable, but they don't have the money to employ, like to have the technology to kind of really be sustainable and, and move forward. And um, kind of there was a lot of the brands that we just, we couldn't shoot. We couldn't do a photo shoot that was covering 20, 30 labels that looked really cool that would entice the reader to want to buy it or to go after that. And I think that's what's very difficult is having these fashion brands that are leading the market, such as your Gucci or your Louis Vuitton or your Prada, whoever, um, that aren't being sustainable. And then you have on the other spectrum um, brands such as your Stella McCartney. Who can afford that? It's super expensive. It's sustainable and it's vegan, but you can't afford that. So people have, I feel... And it's a conversation we have around our, our house is how do you have the youngsters that are going to college that are 18, 21, they can't afford the higher-end luxury sustainable brands, so they're forced in to go to the Forever 21s and the Gaps and the H&Ms. Um, I know that H&M are trying, we were talking about this earlier, are trying to be really open and transparent about being sustainable and giving back and having a different model. But that's something that we have found as our business that it's difficult to kind of support sustainable brands um, in, my, in the fashion industry um, that are going to be on par to all the other labels that are out there. And I don't know if that's something, Bill, that you see that, or that's taught at FIT kind of in terms of design. Um, I know that you might be on a different spectrum of that. I, I think there is a problem and there is a hole in the market, but – as I'm listening to you, I think there's also been people and I think there's a group of upcoming designers that are going to at least fill to that point a very valuable niche of that hole. Um, and you know, to circle this around, I think for the financial people in the room, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing there are designs that are sustainable and there's designers that are actually putting sustainability into the core of the design in a way that would actually drive revenue generation. Right, not just cost reduction, supply chain reduction, but revenue generation because you're looking at, for example, in uh, areas like bags where you're having changing use patterns by the consumer. They're looking at how you actually redesign everyday carrying bags into not only something that's sustainable from a supply chain and a manufacturing perspective, but that we would actually buy less bags as a person, right, and that they would actually be better bags for our, you know, Manhattan lifestyle, for example, right? And that they'd be more functional. And I think that's going to actually drive revenue generation for what I've seen people actually purchasing these products in these lines. So I think, you know, if you were, a, uh, you know, in that sector right now, you would see a lot of changing habits going on with the consumer and you could actually build a, a revenue line. Yeah. And I think that we're seeing a lot of kind of cost reductions coming in, kind of to your point, when you look at the supply chain on the whole, and not just on your on your capex side of things, but also on the resiliency of your supply chain. So, if you're talking about textiles and growing cotton in areas that are likely to experience drought in the future, how does how does a drought and a cotton like a a dearth in your supply of cotton affect your ability to sell product? And so, if you can 
come up with an Evernew or an alternative that is a more stable supply and you can build that resiliency into your business model and protect against those losses, then that's a huge upside as well. I think that's a great place to take a break. So. Hey, this is Pavan Ball with Fashion Is Your Business and Mouth Media Network. We record with amazing founders and business leaders across um, fashion and retail and beauty and all those good things. I'm excited to let you know that we're actually heading out to Sydney uh, and quite soon this month. So July 25th and 26th, we're going to be joining the Nora Network and uh, we're going to be over at Online Retailer uh, in Sydney, Australia, recording with some of the business leaders there, some of the uh, innovative uh, startup founders, and we're, we're going to explore as much as we can, and we're going to bring that to you. But if you are in Sydney, would love to connect you, with you. Uh, please email me directly if you'll be in the area. Pavan, that's P-A-V-A-N, at mouthmedianetwork.com. And then the following week on August 1st, we are partnering with IFAB, which is uh, led by Saskia Fairful. And on August 1st, we're going to be doing a Mouth Media Live, our first Mouth Media Live in Australia, so very excited about that. If you will be in the Melbourne area, uh, we highly encourage you to get involved. Uh, again, give me a shout. Or you can visit fashionisyourbusiness.com, and in the top right, you'll see a link to the event. We've been fortunate, of course, to capture stories from places like Copenhagen and San Fran and Vegas, and uh, now we're going to be out in Australia, and we're very excited. Hope to see you there. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. And hear all of our episodes on materialisyourbusiness.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. Welcome back. Uh, we ended with a note about the resilience in um, supply chain and raw materials. I think we can start there and just kind of uh, talk a little bit about the way that we use um, raw materials, I guess, in, in the planning side of what we're doing. And then I think we can move uh, from there fairly rapidly into an interesting conversation about the social responsibility and governance side. Um, so, Danielle, I'd love to start with you since you had closed on that thought. If you can talk a little bit about um, the planning side of the raw materials when you're looking at companies and how they're thinking about resilience in what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and I might not actually be the best person to speak about this, um, not being at one of these large companies myself, but I think that there's a lot that needs to happen uh, between a lot of interfacing that needs to be happening between designers and raw materials supply chains. And you're, you're starting to see that a little bit more as sustainability thoughts get integrated into companies and there's more demand from the brands to have more sustainable clothes or, or materials in their supply chains. But uh, there are a lot of kind of unanswered questions about how, how you can procure the right quantity and quality of a lot of these more sustainable raw materials into your design process. Um, and all I can say is that we're seeing the trends in the industry go in that direction. Uh, but there's, 
there's definitely a lot of work to be done. And we're seeing companies that are creating the marketplaces for access to those sustainable textiles. We're seeing the companies that are creating those sustainable textile supply chains. So uh, it's definitely an evolving industry. And can I just cut in on that just because of what you were just saying? There's two designers that we have um, worked with recently, um, Eileen Fisher and Maria Coneo from Zero, Maria Coneo, who are actually... Um, they're stopping a certain design that they, they used before because it was, um, I think it was a certain polyester they used for their number one selling item because it wasn't being sustainable. So they've kind of taken a really, I think, a huge leap um, in kind of standing behind what they want to be sustainable fully by 2020 by actually stopping their number one bestseller just so that they can be more kind of um, aligned to being eco and sustainable. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, I think it goes into understanding where your source materials are. If I need coffee beans to make coffee, if I need to potatoes to make french fries, if I need source metals to put in a cell phone or I need to, uh, to mine materials to put in roofing product, that's not a, as I said earlier, that's not that a sustainability person sits down the hall and solves for that. That's a company solve for. There are all types of business divisions who really pull apart peel back that onion of what they need, how much they need, how it needs to get to and fro, what the labor force that's going to be sourcing that material um, is, is made up on, how they're protected. So it really takes an entire team um, to do that. And then also I'd say it's it's not just source, but then there's the waste part of it. Because I'll tell you, um, our NBC Universal got bought by Comcast, and you got Comcast, you got a box, and you got remote. Well, the government passed a law a few years ago that said, even if you didn't actually sell to that customer, you made it, you're responsible. So they found a remote control in a landfill in California. We had to pay through the nose for that because, again, we we didn't control our supply chain at the front end and the back end. And we ended up, and this goes into marketing, um, both the marketing and the preventative. So we did all types of public service announcements and messaging and, and consumer materials to really explain and make it really easy for folks to return that stuff. But, you know, on the positive side, I think it's Green Mountain Coffee right now is actually making that part of their brand promise where they said in one minute while you're brewing your coffee, we'll tell you how it got here. And they do a kind of fun little ditty on um, a farmer in a faraway place, I think in Indonesia, who's made, you know, has a farm and a family and he's growing that coffee and he's got more money now. You've got great coffee and aren't we all happy? And the idea is, hey, I want to buy Green Mountain Coffee now. So, it's funny that even how you get your your material, how you run your business, is also becoming um, a good marketing concept, and that's okay. When I, went, I said earlier, it's about you have to get business ROI as well. When Harvey happened, I was talking with a friend of mine who runs small business banking for one of the big banks, and they were all heading down there to volunteer. And I said, that's really great, but you really need to think about the business opportunity here that also – does impact because you have all these small businesses who all of a sudden are going to struggle to make payroll because they're not bringing in money, you know, struggling to support their employees, all types of financial paperwork to figure out. I said another opportunity might be to send your workforce down there to do what they do best um, and help bridge um, your small business members over till when things get more stable. And that should be a customer acquisition strategy. And that might sound crass, like you're using this opportunity to acquire customers. I said. No, what you're doing is doing your job really, really well, and word of mouth will get out there because someone else banks with someone else and said, my bank didn't do any of that, and I'm going to organically move over because you really did a, a two sides of the penny job. You did what you did best, and you did it for people in tough times, very seamless, 
very transparent and let the chips fall as they may. But I guarantee you that there were some banks who probably did it really well in in those uh, disaster zones and some who left their customers hanging. So guess what? There's going to be a shift, but that's a way where you can get dual value that's totally business-aligned, appropriate, and has benefit on all sides. I'm going to use that to segue a little bit. Um, when you're talking about dual value and that mindset, um, I think that also is a great place to transition to this idea of governance and culture. And when you're a company that has a good culture and has a good uh, system of governments and communication, you can make something like that happen. When you're a company that perhaps is broken uh, in some of those areas, um, it can come across very tone deaf in the public. Uh, and I'd love to kind of segue a little bit out of sustainability, talk a little bit more about the social responsibility and culture side uh, inside of companies, both large and small. And I think Beth... Uh, yeah, well, I'll start, I mean, it's part of the reason I left and started my own shop because I think there were so many companies who were doing, if we stripped away all those titles, they were doing more philanthropy and charity with a little, you know, a toe in the water alignment with business. But things have gotten much more complex and like really upstream of what is your purpose and are you being true to your brand promise and your purpose? And that should guide a good amount of your business activity. And goodness knows, haven't we seen in the last year or so how many companies who should have delivered value on what their brand promises, and they've totally gone sideways, whether it was protecting our data, um, whether it was, again, with not to call it Wells Fargo, but something went skewy there where all of a sudden they're like, listen, it's not about serving our customers and, and providing good banking. It's when it all costs to the where records were falsified. Yeah. Somewhere purpose. But at least they're reestablished in 2018, so that's fine. Oh, yeah, but like, yeah, like we said, we've got to keep pivoting. But so there's some of that where people are back in their heels and trying to solve for it, um, where things have happened. Or now you've even seen investors address it when something hasn't happened, but you see storm clouds. And for the example of Jana Partners with a high investor in Apple saying, listen, we're an investor and we're looking at your long-term um, value here. And we think you have to address this addiction, particularly with young people, on your devices. And on the positive Apple responded to that, and they just, I think it was last week, started just released the first set of phone algorithms to actually show you what your consumption is and trying to build in tools into your, that, that software of what they can do at least to build the awareness of how much time people are spending on devices, and then hopefully that will be the first of many steps to drive that. But again, I think it's um, before you get to the tactical of how you solve for uh, social impact. You have to go into the purpose of the company, and then things need to drive through there. Again, not just through people who have that in their title, but through every employee in every hallway and every office. Yeah, I love that you're using this idea of purpose. Um, there's actually a, a firm that's trying to invest in companies and actually convert companies over to this what's called a steward ownership model, uh, which is a new form of governance at the company level, which says, you know, we're going to make sure that every business decision that you make is aligned with that purpose of the company, which, um, you know, in early stage companies, we expect you to pivot a little bit more, but in later stage companies, we expect you to keep, you know, keep tabs on that. Um, and what we're seeing in, in the early stage companies, or I think what we're expecting to see at least is, you know, better employee retention, um, 
more uh, more innovative ideas coming out of your employees and these things that should ideally drive the bottom line that are tied into having more engagement uh, across the board. So I think this is all right. I think for our audience, I want to give a quick story. Um, maybe some of you don't know. It's now being taught very routinely in business school. And when I went to business school, this company didn't exist, but you've all heard of it. The company's Warby Parker, right? And it was founded by some very young gentlemen just uh, getting out of school, and they wanted to reinvent the eyeglass industry. It's a very famous story now. When they actually launched their product, they were wildly successful, and they had this mission of a supply chain efficiency. They actually sold out, and they had no way of shutting down their system. They forgot to put a turn it off button on. They couldn't stop taking orders. They had an emergency meeting, and the question, the one question the emergency meeting is, do we pull the plug or do we keep taking orders that we know we can't fill? And their answer was, we have to stand for something. We have to call all those people that we can't fill the orders on and say, we're sorry, we took the order by mistake. We can't send you your glasses, right? And it was a business decision that they said, we have to be true to our culture. Ultimately, rather than being a PR nightmare, it turned into a wild success that we all know this company today. And they said, we're going to make this all right. We're going to turn it off as quickly as we can. We're going to call all the people we took orders that we shouldn't have taken orders from, right? And we're going to stand for, this is what we stand for. And ultimately, they built the brand off of this, right? So it's really about leadership from the top, believing in what they say their mission, their responsibility, and their vision is here because they want to stand for something and they want their brand to stand for something. But I also think showing transparency, mm-hmm. I think, which is absolutely critical with businesses now that if, um, and it's something that I really believe in is that if I make an error or a boo-boo or something and I miss a deadline or I, I forget I should have gone to a Rolex meeting and I turn up the next morning. It's like, I'm really sorry, I'm knackered, I'm on deadline. And so I think transparency is absolutely critical. And like you were saying, Bill, you've got to lead from the top and you've got to follow through to that so that the people underneath you or your colleagues understand, you know, that this is your driving force, this is your DNA of the company. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned the DNA and you mentioned it. This is also a big challenge with workforce. and on, on two fronts. One, I'm gonna, you know, we've heard this a thousand times that the up-and-coming workforce, which is now a huge percentage of the workforce, this millennial, wants more than to show up, get their paycheck, and here's a to-do list. They, the retention and their own fulfillment at work also depends on, I want to know why I'm doing it. I want to know what the brand promise is. I want to know what we stand for. And I want to know it, it's transparently honest because goodness knows sometimes you hand an put a nice slogan on the door. You've got the mission statement on your ID card, but you don't live it. Um, The other challenge with this, which is kind of a subcategory on retention, is the fact that more and more people are moving out of formal work. The idea of working for a company um, where I am a formal employee and I stay there a certain amount of years is not becoming the norm. And I, I don't know how many years it is. I think it's in Seven, they think it could be upwards of 47% of people will be independent workers. So some of the strategies to hold people into corporate jobs is the one thing you can't get working on your own is this idea of being part of a team that's moving the ball on something, on some higher purpose. So it's also part of um, the future of work and a retention strategy to get um, a deep bench 
um, for your growing workforce and your future workforce. So all of these things kind of interplay. And, and I think they're interplaying even more in what you're saying. The workforce, um, it used to be that those um, mission statements were, you know, nice posters that we had, you know, as we were talking earlier, mm-hmm. very very high-priced consulting firms come into the corporation and do a project and we make a, a new strategy, a new mission statement, a new vision. We have new Slogans, uh, slogans, slogans, new slogans. We 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 do we rebrand the entire building with the new posters hung up, and uh-huh. they were sitting on the wall. But the question of these young workers are: it's not the poster; it's are we actually living the mission of what it is? It's not like can I recite the ten things on the wall? It's actually living it, and they're actually questioning on a daily basis. You know, not the not the simple cases that were there but actually the things that we didn't think about. Mm-hmm. And they are looking for the companies that are actually walking the walk, not just talking mm-hmm. the talk mm-hmm. of what their actual mission and vision is. Yeah, Bob Iger talked about that. Whatever you think of the Roseanne statement, they work really hard on their purpose and, to your point, the really driving a playbook down of how they live it. That was a quick strategy because it's almost like they had run it in scenario before. They, they had a structure to it, but several executives came out saying, what would we be saying about our company, not just to the customer and the viewer, but to employees? Because we're preaching this all the time. We're having all types of sessions and seminars, and you get it in your onboarding, and how are we making decisions? So we from the outside can think right, wrong, but they did that because it was part of what their purpose strategy was, that a strategy has to be actionable. Otherwise, it's the theoretical, it's the the philosophy and all that, it doesn't hit the ground. It's, and they want to make sure that they lived in it and it hit the ground. Yeah, and a lot of employees today, I think especially young employees who are on social media and super connected, can smell bullshit whenever it comes up, right? Mm-hmm. So they're talking to everyone across the board, and they know if you're just saying the statement and not actually living it internally, they, they can talk to their friend who works there and say, okay, I'm not going to apply there. I'll go somewhere else. And I think that's usually a positive about social media is that you can get called out on it because you can hide behind that by saying that's BS, I don't believe in that, and and really kind of shaming people on social media to do better and to be transparent and um, pay for their actions. Um, we are actually now out of time, but and I, I love that. Uh, I like closing on this conversation that was just happening. Um, although it is June 2018, so I do have to include the word blockchain in this panel at some point. Um, so that's done now as well. But, uh, but thank you all for coming and joining us, and, and I think this conversation can continue uh, afterwards. This has been Material Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at materialisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, materialisyourbusiness.com. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.